Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to um, our Facebook Live today, and we're going to be talking about the mountain of transfiguration. It's um, something I've always definitely been fascinated with, just reality of what's going on there. But more recently, in, in not just personal study, but encounter, it's becoming a valid expression of exploration. Let me say that again. It's become a valid, it's a valid place for us to begin to explore the depths of the mysteries of what we are finding here as Jesus the Messiah is transfigured before the apostles. So I'm going to give you guys a few minutes to tune in here as I'm going to share this link um, to a few different places. And as you join in, um, share this on your wall, um, like it, give it a thumbs up, um, whatever it takes to kind of get the algorithms. Um, I was going to be with Linda and Linda Jones and Raymond Tillez. I think Raymond had a doctor's appointment and Linda's in Australia. So it's a really, really um, good chance that she's asleep on accident, <laughs> but we all need our rest, but it's okay. We had a backup plan. So I'm sorry for being late. Um, I was going live at 11 and here it is. Um, what about almost a quarter after. So let me share this a few different places and we're going to get started. All right. Uh, let's see. Jesus Shared a couple groups and then we're going to get started with the teaching and the discussion here. Okay, let's get started, guys. Um, I think my other side, my monitor's frozen, so here we go. Let me share it here in this group and then we begin. One thing I've learned, ladies and gentlemen, is it appears to always be a little bit easier to do this type of stuff with help because then the, while they're inter, you know, welcoming everybody, I can be sharing and things, but I'm glad to be here. Um, you know, let's start with this. I got my, um, I got Charles Franco with me. Um, the Lord has really, really blessed me with um, um, to be in relationship with this young man and to pour into him. And um, she's a beautiful man of God out of Haiti. Um, brilliant mind, call of God on his life that is probably beyond what I can even comprehend, most likely beyond what he comprehends right now. And I'm so thankful that the Lord would uh, trust him into my care to be able to speak into his life and to pour into him. So it's just a blessing to have him with us today. Um, but we're going we're gonna to go into Luke chapter 9. Now, I was really looking at Matthew 17. I was looking at uh, Mark's, Mark's um, take on the mountain of transfiguration. 
Um, but Luke 9 is where I think I want to go because of a few key words that we're going to find in Luke's gospel that's not present in in Matthew or Mark. Now, you can read Matthew and Mark, and you can read between the lines, but Luke actually puts a specific word in the story of the transfiguration that you don't see in the gospel of Matthew or the gospel of Mark. And so I, I want to key into a few of these um, these ideas so that we can begin to unpack what's actually going on here and the significance of not just the awe-inspiring, um, that which makes you wonder, that makes you want to step back and say, wow, wasn't that amazing? Did you feel God's presence? Now, this is a terrifying encounter for the three apostles that were allowed to go into the presence of God in a way that the rest were not yet walking in. And I believe there's a reason for this. And I don't believe, I don't believe it has anything to do with God picking some and not picking others. Rather, I believe it has everything to do with the present state of our being in him. Because think about it like this below. The presence of God is amazing. And we can be in a service or we can be in prayer and we can um, have an encounter and we, wow, God, I really feel the presence of God. You can sense the weight. You can sense the shift in the atmosphere, if you will. But there are other times that if there is a little bit more of this glory that's unveiled, different things begin to transpire amongst the people that are sensing his presence. Sometimes the presence of God comes to a room and pandemonium and chaos entails. I've seen people trample, almost trample each other to get to the altars at a specific service. Yeah, it was years ago. My wife and I, we were at a conference at Christian International. Um, Bill Hammonds, I believe it was Bishop Bill Hammond at the time. Um, I think um, Tom and Jane Hammond has that place now, or at least they did. And there was a conference and um, a prophet by the name of Cindy Jacobs um, was came up to minister to talk to teach whatever she was doing you know and, you know all it was pretty interesting but she was walking in something that the others were not walking in it's just god on his truth and when this lady got up and began to pray and then it, it just everything began to shift the best way i can describe it is these were shift and then there was a a holy silence a hush that fell upon a room with probably Seven, eight hundred people, and it was just a holy hush. And as we were sitting there, the atmosphere began to become electrified. You could sense, um, you could literally sense the angels of God ascending and descending within that room. And I looked at my wife, Lisa, and I said, Angels are in here. I don't mean just you know, symbolically or metaphorically, they were revealing themselves. You could sense the tangible electric currents that were that was moving. And just a few moments later, after I said that, people just started wailing and running, climbing over the pews to get on their face as close to the altar area as possible. Because something happens when you are directly confronted with light, L-I-G-H-T. I mean, directly confronted with true light, real light, authentic, pure light, light that's undefiled 
from anything that we see with our natural eyes. As a matter of fact, a light that is so brilliant and a light that is so bright that it can even appear to look like darkness to others. As you'll see, a dark cloud comes over them. The voice speaks out of the cloud. So let's look at this in Luke chapter 9, and we're going to pick right up around verse 28. And the scripture says, some eight days after these sayings. Now, maybe we want to look at the, the fact that Luke is talking about some eight days after. Uh, Matthew and Mark talks about six days six days after or after six days, which after six days, if you really look at the Greek, I believe it's saying that after six days, I mean, anything after six days, perhaps the seventh day was, was um, dealing specifically with the Sabbath and the eighth day being a new beginning. Sometimes beloved, it takes us coming into a new beginning in our lives in order for us to encounter and experience God in ways that we have previously not been able to experience him in yet. Yeah, eight throughout the scriptures is always, um, as far as I can tell, and from what I've studied, the number eight is typically dealing with new beginnings. You know, you think about there was um, God created man on the sixth day, on the seventh day, God rested from all his works. And then we come into this um, place of rest or temple creation of the paradise of God in the Garden of Eden. The eighth day is the new beginning of the creation of God. Um, we can take it up to when we look at seven days a week. The eighth day is, of course, the first day, but, you know, it's a eighth day or a new beginning. So the new beginning is the first day of the new week. Jesse had seven sons. Samuel walked and looked at all seven, seven of his sons, examined the seven sons, and God said, I have not chosen any of these men to be king of Israel. So Samuel looks at Jesse and says, is there not another son? And Jesse said, yes, there is another, um, the insignificant one, that's what the Hebrew says, the insignificant one that's herding the sheep. Go get him, Samuel said. And they brought David before Samuel, the eighth son of Jesse, which is the new beginning of Israel because he was anointed to be king and to replace Saul, the king the present king, the current king at that time. So eight deals with new beginnings. As we see here in verse 28, some eight days after these sayings, some eight days after these sayings, eight days after these sayings, the new beginning is here. He took along Peter and John and James and went up, to the mountain to pray. Somebody say to pray. I'm going to wait on you to say. Somebody say to pray. So the purpose of the ascent into the mountain with James, John, the sons of Zebedee, the brothers, and Peter, the one who had just previously especially if you're like in, in the gospel of Matthew, uh, you're going to see Matthew 16. Peter has just had the revelation that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, but he also had the same, the, the revelation that the Messiah is also the son of God, God's only begotten son. So this is what we're looking at right here. They went into a mountain to pray. Now notice that out of the 12, only three was taken up into this mountain. And I beloved, this is significant. 
I want us to examine this a little bit more carefully than what might appear to be at the surface, because oftentimes we get weighed down, burdened down with our Christianese um, hand-me-downs, and we'll say, that's the remnant I was in the remnant and God took the remnant. Jesus took the remnant. You know, it's the remnant that goes. It's, and yes, there's truth to that. Absolutely. There's absolute truth to this. You can see this when we begin to look at Jesus had 70, Luke chapter 9, Luke chapter 10, as you read on, that he sends out into um, the regions to evangelize, to preach, to cast out demons, and to heal the sick, raise the dead, to preach the good news of the kingdom. But then he has his 12, which is his, his apostles, those he chose, he has the women that were close to him, such as Mary Magdalene. But there are times when Jesus is going to go somewhere that not everybody is ready to go. This isn't the only time that Jesus took those three with him. There's another time when Jesus um, has encountered James, John, and Peter on intimate ways that obviously is not based upon the Lord wanting to show favor, per se, to these three men. Rather, I believe it deals with the condition of their spiritual formation, what they were ready to see, what they were ready to bear witness of and bear witness to. This is important right here, because it's not that the Lord did not want all 12 or the 70 or heck. The entire, the entire um, regions of, of Israel and Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth, ultimately, this has been the Lord's will so that he could reveal himself through his son. I'll say that again. It's all, it has always been the will of Abba to reveal to us who he is through the express image of himself, which is the son. This has always been the plan. This has always been plan A. This has always been the game plan. We go all the way back and we realize that it has always been God's intent to show himself, reveal himself, and to walk with his creation through a human embodiment. This is the Lamb of God slain before the foundations of the world. It's not a plan B, beloved. It's plan A. It's always been plan A. It has always been plan A for God to become a human being so that the creation will be able to not, not, not just know who he is by way of the wind or by way of creation, which speaks of his glory because he upholds all things together by the power of his word, Hebrews chapter 1-3. This is the glory of God, beloved. But God didn't want us just to know him through chill bumps or fire by night, cloud by day. He didn't want us just to know about him because of the commandments that were hammered out in the Old Testament. He wanted us to know him through encounter, and the encounter ultimately is revealed in the face of the Son, the incarnation of the second person of the Godhead who wrapped himself in human flesh, which, ladies and gentlemen, this is so powerful, is that when God becomes a man, ontologically, they are one. One what? What am I saying here? God wrapped himself in human flesh, so ontologically, he is God. 100% ontologically, he is human 100%. And that ontological, um, in, that ontological hypostasis cannot be undone. It cannot be undone. There's no separation between God and, and the Son of Man, the Son of God, the Son of Man. There is no separation in the point of incarnation. So it's always been the Father's will to reveal who he is 
in the Son who perfectly represents who he is. Let me say that again. The Son perfectly represents the Father perfectly. So he could say to Thomas if he's, or Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen my Father. You cannot see my Father any other way. There's, you can't see God. He's spirit. As a matter of fact, Jesus said, no man has ever seen the Father but the Son, and whom the Son will reveal him to. So in order to know the Father, to see the Father, to hear the Father, to be about the Father's business, we must look in the face of the Son of God. But sometimes, beloved, appearances are not always what they seem to be. How often do we judge somebody by our first encounter by their appearance? Maybe they are not just like us. They, maybe they don't dress just like us or act just like us or believe just like we do. And we're so quick sometimes to dismiss. Excuse me a second. Our, our dog's outside going nuts. and I'm not sure what it is. Anyway, what we end up having to do is we begin to judge people based upon the flesh and not based upon the spirit. And fundamentally, there, that, this is a doctrinal error that's going to have to be corrected moving forward. But don't let me get bogged up in that. Oftentimes, what we are looking at is that when the Lord is inviting us into an encounter to encounter him, it's not that he's not wanting the 12, the 70, the 120 to go into that encounter oftentimes is based upon where we are in our formation. And why is that? You know, we might could ask the question and, you know, I know I would, I would ask the question. I probably have asked the question before in, in wrestling with some of the stuff and at the times of really seeking out to process some of this revelation and this information, I would ask myself questions such as, would it, wouldn't it be better if God just, boom, revealed his glory to all of them at one time so that they could say, matter of factly, oh, I believe. Obviously, it's God. Uh, no, I don't believe it can work that way. And there's a reason. Number one, when we begin to look at the, 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 the fallen nature of humans, of people, of men and women, it takes a level of forming Spiritual formation is what we call this in order for us to be able to see and be able to have our perception correctly uh, adjusted so that what we see is not based upon a marred perception, but it is a perception that's been adjusted, a perception that's been healed, so that what we see is not something that is... Um, filtered through our biases, our cognitive biases. This is very important, beloved, because when God created man, Adam and Eve in the garden, male and female, he created them. He puts them in a garden, tells them not to eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge. What do they do? Not going in depth in this, but just to show you something. They eat, they sin, the wages of sin is death, and they hide. The moment they the moment they step into disobedience and commit the transgression, at that very moment, their, their vision, their perception has been marred to such an extent that when they try to remember God, 
it has become fatally flawed, fundamentally flawed, and their memory has been twisted, and even what they think they knew about God has been altered, changed, and twisted, corrupted, perverted. So this is why Paul would say men had become alienated in their minds, hostile and enemies of the truth, because sin fatally, fatally, and fundamentally corrupts our vision, our perception, and how we perceive God. So if God immediately just says, peekaboo, here I am, well, our perception of what we see can do one of two things. One of two things is either going to illuminate us to such an extent because we have been quickened and made alive by the work of the Holy Spirit, or the second thing it would do, it might just kill us. And I'm not saying that to say, well, God's going to kill you, brother. This is, this is not the point. We, 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 again, this is what we do. We bleed our biases into the sacred text, and then we see things where God's holiness and God's sovereignty and God's his justice, raw, unyielding, unbinding power. And then we think, well, God will kill you, brother. Well, listen, I don't think it's so much about God killing you, but rather that because of the fundamentally flawed perception of how we have seen God, the way we perceive God, specifically before we have even realized that Jesus Christ is our Savior and we surrender and yield ourselves to him, Oftentimes, what ends up happening is that if we were to see him in such glory, I don't know if we could survive it. I don't think we can. Think about what God told Moses on the mountain. Mountain, The mountain's on fire. There's a dark cloud. You can't see through it. This is the unknowingness of God. This is the mysterion of God. And, beloved, you're going to have to become okay with mystery, not thinking that we always have to have the answers. Because when we begin to dive deep into some of the profound revelation that's been given to us, we're going to find out that the rabbit hole goes a much, much, much deeper than what we realized. But yet some things are not meant for us, at least not on this side of life. So mystery has to be embraced. And when we can embrace mystery and become okay with mystery, then there's a whole entire world of exploration that opens up to us. Places that we've never been, things we've never seen, um, sounds we've never heard. This is really learning how to go into the depths of God. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, who's known the mind of God that he may instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. There's this ability to speak what God's thinking, which shifts things in ways that otherwise could not be shift or moved. But more than anything, beloved, it's about allowing the process of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to work within us in such a way that God can give us more and more and more light so that we can see him in ways that we've never seen him before. And you might ask, why is this important? Beloved, this is instrumental to our, our growth as sons and daughters of God. It's instrumental to our spiritual formation, our maturity in, in the charismata, the gifts of the spirit. It is fundamentally profoundly important if we're going to become who God's called us to be in this earth, because it's only as we see him that we become like him. 
And if you only see him in the level you saw him 20 years ago, 10 years ago, 30 years ago, you're living on yesterday's manna. And you're actually most likely living from a memory of God, not in his presence. And what happens because of the fallen nature that we still wrestle with? I know there's going to be people tell you that, well, you're the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. You are, absolutely. But that doesn't mean that we're still not being conformed into his image, which means that even though we can argue rather or not the human spirit's perfect, I, I, I believe that. I agree with that. But we have a mind. We have will, we have emotions, we have intellect, we have ideologies, we have thoughts, we have biases, we have prejudices. Or I don't even think I said that right. There are so many different things about us that have been transmitted or transferred into our lives from the time we were babies, or even into the womb itself, all the way to where we are now. And because of that, it's going to take the rest of our life to get to know God a little more and more. Here's what I have to say. Because we have... Um, because we have been given this, this gift, this gift of righteousness, this, this, this earnest down payment of the Holy Spirit, that we can know the Christ in us. Let me say that again. We can actually know the Christ in us. Then we have to allow that Christ to conform us into his image. You cannot conform yourself no more than you can unveil him on a mountain to see his glory. You can't will these things to happen. That's witchcraft. You cannot will God to reveal himself. You have to learn how to abide within what's already been revealed. And there lights come on. Remember, I've been talking to you a lot lately about the inverted gospel. The inverted gospel, simply put, is saying that everything that the early church taught has been turned inside out. So now instead of starting from a place of presence and moving to revelation, we start our church services from a place of absence, hoping to get to a place of presence because we have become literally truly blind in so many ways that we, we don't know. We don't see, we don't understand and we're doing the best we can. We're doing the best we can with what we've been given, but the Lord is opening up the eyes of his people in a way that is just mind boggling. I want to read a little bit more here. I continue on exactly what I'm talking about, but this is important. So eight days after these sayings, he took along Peter, John, and James. He went up to the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, while he was praying, let's look at it like this. Have you ever thought what it might be like if you could join Jesus in one of those times that he goes up into a mountain by himself to pray? So many times you see, I, he, he, he escapes, he gets away from the crowd, he gets away from the people, he even gets away from his disciples. He goes up into mountains, goes up into wilderness areas, places where there's solitude and silence, and there he prays. And prayer oftentimes there is not as much about intercession as it is about contemplation, or contemplation is, is a type of prayer that you cannot do because you will that as well. You can't will contemplation. You can set yourself in position for contemplation, but even contemplative prayer is a work of the spirit. It's a work of grace in your life. So to see him is a work of grace. To see him is a work of the spirit. In order to see him, you have to position yourself, but that positioning to see him is the only place where you're going to encounter transformation. His transfiguration is your transformation. 
I'm going to say that again. His transfiguration is your transformation. This is 1 John 3. Beloved, we are now, even now, presently, regardless of what it looks like, you are sons of God. You are daughters of God. You are technon here, children of God. It's a generic term for his, his family, his sons and his daughters. Beloved, now you are the children of God, even though it doesn't yet appear what you shall be. But, you, but we know that when we see him, we will be like him because we see him as he is. Conformity into the image of Christ is a work of grace, a work of the spirit, and conformity only comes from beholding him. The more you are able to behold him now, the more you're going to turn into an image like him now. So the more we behold him, the more we are able to gaze into the beauty of his holiness, the more transformation comes in our lives for that spiritual maturity, the growth and the maturation that we're looking for. You're not going to get it, beloved, by reading books. You're not going to get it by studying the scriptures. All these things are necessary to be in the arsenal of the weapons that God's given us. But even the study of the scriptures has to be done in a way that perhaps we're not used to doing it. You know, from a theological standpoint, we have many different ways to interpret the scriptures and the least and probably the weakest is the fundamental literal approach. But when we, when we begin to shift through the different ways of reading the scriptures, you'll find that there are also what we would call the metaphorical. There's also, or the allegorical, not metaphorical, the allegorical, but there's also the anagogical. That's a big word, I know. But what it simply means is the mystical reading. And what that says is that you get to a place where no longer are you going into the scriptures to read them, but you go into the scriptures to let them read you. Now, there's a difference because when they read you, this not saying this because it sounds cool. I'm not saying this because it sounds catchy. You know, let's tweet it, you know, post it on Facebook. We don't go. That's not at all why I'm saying these things. I was saying these because this is the reality. There is a shift that will come in your life that you will end up in the text, the sacred text, the scriptures that's been given to us. And as we begin to read, we learn how to begin to meditate on his law day and night. When I say the law, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, Romans chapter 8, 1 and 2. And now we begin to see Jesus in Exodus. We see Jesus in Deuteronomy. We see Jesus in Leviticus. We see Jesus in Numbers. We see Jesus in Judges. We see Jesus in Joshua. We see Jesus in First and Second Samuel, First and Second Chronicles. We see Jesus in Ezra, Nehemiah, Psalms and Proverbs, Song of Solomon. We begin to see him in the prophets, minor and major. Now everything that we do with the text is in the centrality of the one and only Son of the living God. This is the key to your inner healing. This is the key to your ongoing transformation. Because remember what I said, it is his transfiguration that becomes your transformation. Why? Because when he's transfigured, you find out that he's not just a human, but he's also God. Oh, Jesus. Let me continue to read here. This is so powerful. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different and his clothing became white and gleaming 
Matthew, of course, would say he was transfigured before them. Verse 30. And behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah. Now, interesting. Can we go a little deeper? Let's go a little bit deeper. Let me stretch you just a little bit. Interesting. Moses and Elijah are two interesting individuals. From the surface level, we know Moses would represent the law. Elijah would represent the prophets. So the law and the prophets are hinged in this one thing Jesus would teach that we love one another. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love your neighbor. Love God, love your neighbor. Love God, love your neighbor. Let's take it a little bit further there. Elijah didn't see death. Elijah was caught up by a whirlwind after the flaming, fiery chariots of God separated him and Elisha. And after the separation, he's taken up into a whirlwind. Taken up into a whirlwind. He's gone. What happens to Moses? Well, Moses dies, per se. Moses is taken up to the mountain. He sees the promised land, never enters into it at that point. But interesting that Moses dies, but nobody knows where he's buried. <laughs> you get over to the New Testament, when you start reading Peter and Jude, you find out that Satan is contending with Michael. Michael's contending with Satan over his body. Why did Satan want the body of Moses? I've got some ideas on that, but to be honest with you, there are more speculations. So you hear me ask questions sometimes, beloved, because I want to provoke in you the right and the, watch this, the beautiful liberty and freedom of the sons and daughters of God to ask questions and to allow the Spirit of God to lead you on a journey to get questions answered. Because maybe sometimes God will say, you don't need to know that. But the Lord does not get offended when you ask him hard questions. This is called critical thinking, and most people in the church today, pastors and leaders, they don't want you to think for yourself. They want to think for you because, sadly, a lot of our ministries are controlled by narcissistic personalities that prey on feeble-minded, weak-minded people who are insecure. So insecure leaders, specifically narcissists who are insecure leaders, they breed to themselves and draw to, draw to themselves the people who are really, really uh, kind of like what I would tend to be outside of the redeeming grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and that's passive aggressive. Yeah, you know, my tendency. So I'm not talking bad about anybody. We're all jacked up. If it wasn't, but the grace of God working in our life, every single one of us. The majority of us all have narcissistic tendencies. The majority of us have tendencies towards um, being passive aggressive or whatever it is that we feel is a dysfunction or a, or a handicap in our life. But that's not who we are to remain to be. This is process. So I said all that to say this. Moses and Elijah are speaking to him, the law and the prophets, the witness, the two faithful witnesses of the old covenant that spoke concerning that the fulfillment of all things will be summed up in Jesus Christ, which we find in Ephesians 1 and Galatians 4 picks up on it and says the fullness of time, that which all things are summed up in him, Jesus, happened at the incarnation. Jesus Christ was born of a virgin under the law. And Paul says that was in the fullness of time. And then we read here that even Moses and Elijah, they appeared in glory. And they were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. 
Now, Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep. But when they were fully awake, look at this. But when they were fully awake, they saw his glory. You'll never see his glory in a state of stupid sleep. See, the alienation in our minds, the ongoing process of, of our transformation, the renewing of our minds, be not conformed to this world, Paul said in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, be not conformed to this world. This world here is, um, I think it's cosmos, I don't think it's aeon here, but regardless, don't be conformed to the way things are done here. Be transformed. Remember, his transfiguration becomes our transformation. Now, even though the Greek words of transformation and transfiguration are very similar indeed, it's the context that gives us the ability to know what word needs to be used. Because Jesus doesn't enter into what I believe is a transformation. Because to, to say that the transfiguration of Jesus is a transformation is to say that Jesus had to become something he wasn't. See, transformation for us is necessary because it is the ongoing work of us becoming who he has purposed us to be through the, the predetermined purpose and plan. He's predestined us to be sons, uh, the predestined us into the adoption of sonship, weothesia, which is son placement, being placed in the family and the household of faith. But Jesus enters into transfiguration because he's not becoming or being transformed into what he wasn't. He's actually being unveiled to show those on that mountain who he actually has been the entire time. And beloved, Jesus is fine with revealing himself to you in the light that you're able to handle in a present given moment. It's up to us whether or not we want to see him in a greater glory. I believe this is why we're told we are to go from glory to glory. This glory to glory has nothing to do with the greatest, next greatest revelation, insight, prophetic word, altar service, or this isn't the glory to glory. St. Irenaeus, a disciple of Polycarp, who was a disciple of John the Beloved, who was on this mountain with Jesus, James, and Peter. St. Irenaeus says this, the glory of God is man fully alive. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. When he's transfigured, what do they see? Great light illuminating from his being. Why? Because this human being named Jesus is filled fully, completely, ontologically, eternally with the fullness of the Godhead, lived in, abided in him in human form or bodily. So to see Jesus unveiled, look, to see him unveiled is to see the glory of the Father, the Spirit, and the Son emanating from his entire being. This is not just a human being that came to be a great prophet. This is not just a human being. Who do men say that I am? I think he had to ask this question. Peter got it, and I think perhaps James and John got it too, because even though they're not mentioned to have said anything, is after these things, eight days after these sayings, Jesus takes these three up into the mountain 
And I believe it's by the confession that the father revealed to Peter who the son was that Jesus could then unveil himself so that they could see what they had already received by revelation. See, beloved, if your revelation is not bringing you into encounter, then whatever you have is not revelation. It may be information. Let me say that again. If whatever you call revelation does not bring you into an encounter, then whatever you have is not revelation. Whatever you have is information. Because revelation deals with unveiling, revealing. And there's only one that is being revealed to the church. It's not the Nephilim. It's not the rapture. It's not the dates that this is going to happen or that's going to happen. It's not the next president. It's not the people in Congress. I'm not saying that God will not give us a voice to speak to these things. But all of these must, must be understood as side issues. They are, they are areas that are in the least important aspect of what we are to know and understand as sons and daughters of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Because when we begin to really, really, really understand that the, the foundation of faith from the point of Jesus forward has not, Jesus didn't come as a sidebar. He, you know, I don't know how else to say this. When Jesus came, it wasn't just a footnote in the greater scheme of what God's going to do. The cross is in a footnote to the resurrection. The cross is in a footnote to the apostles and prophets. The cross is not the footnote to apostolic reformation. You know, God's, God's judgment's coming on this stuff because it's, uh, it's, 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 it's God making war on all things that's not in his image and his likeness. So in other words, if it's not in love, if it doesn't look like love, if it doesn't smell like love, hear like love, or taste like love, it's not love. And God is saying we have to get back to the fundamental understanding, as Paul the Apostle would say, I don't know anything else but Jesus Christ and him crucified, because it is at the Eucharistic table of his presence that we live in a we live in a way that is not based upon our memories of the past romance that we've had with our creator and our savior and our Lord, but rather it is a revelation of the ongoing daily outworking of walking with him in this life. I have traveled to churches throughout the years and different places and you, you know, I could tell you there are, I could not by any form of, 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 of spirit um, inspiration, but rather by observation. I could walk into a church and pretty much could tell you a ballpark figure of, of the last time they had a revival. I could pretty much tell you when they had revival last when they had an outpouring of or renewal, a refreshing, an apocostasis, a, a, a restoration movement, I can tell you what it happened based upon the way their ministry design is within the sanctuary. Because oftentimes, beloved, 
we have grown so accustomed to building memorials in the name of God, and then we say this is where we worship at this memorial stone. And so what we think is God did it like that in 1974. We've never moved beyond 1974. We still worship the God we encountered in 1974, and we worship him just like we did in 1974. And then the greatest resistance to the present move of God's spirit are the people who partook in the previous encounter, the previous revival, the previous outpouring. The men and women who knew him in a great outpouring then becomes those who resist him today because they have built their entire foundation, their entire ministry, their entire paradigm of the way they see God and express God based upon what he did, not based upon what he's doing now. Give us this day our daily bread to see the Lord in ways that's going to bring us into greater light so that he can be transfigured before us so that that transfiguration becomes our transformation. Ultimately, what that is, is that this is what the, the old church would call the theosis for all sons and daughters of God, which obviously not everybody enters into theosis, which is really the ability to be able to become very much like God by grace. Because the more we behold him, the more we become like him. Image bearers. In his image, his likeness. So we don't just look like him, but we act like him. We take on divine nature is what Peter says. We want this. But you know what? I think that sometimes it's about as well that it's not that Jesus doesn't want all 12 to have this encounter. But sometimes it's those who have found a place of intimacy. You know, today in our society, think about it. If I if I was hanging out with Raymond and say we're um say um Raymond and I and we got a group of people and we're at we're at Applebee's. And so we're sitting in a booth. And say I, I got down and I put my 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 head on Raymond's chest right here and just kind of leaned into him to kind of snuggle. I promise you, every single person that saw that would think something was funny. They would question our sexual orientation. And I, I can't say I blame them, but it doesn't mean it's the right way. Because, see, it, all of this is a twisted perversion of what love looks like. John, a fisherman, sons of thunder, sons of Zebedee, the, the apostle who's the prophet of the New Testament, the visionary, the seer of the New Covenant, would lay his head in the bosom of Jesus and listen to his heartbeat because John recognized this isn't just a prophet this is my creator this isn't just my friend and my brother this is my creator we've got to redeem masculinity to such a point that we're not ashamed to cry we're not ashamed to love we're not ashamed to be vulnerable. Because as long as we got those walls up, man, hear me, man, as long as we keep those walls up, we'll not have the encounter we want. Are we ashamed to be called his bride? Because in our, in our minds, our carnal thinking, we think bride is a female. 
But you know, God's a female too. God's male and female. If if that if if that is a thing, you know, male and female created He them in His image and likeness. So the female, the female attribute of the human the human being is also an image of likeness of God. So you can take it any way you want to take it. But it's true. But we have to learn, beloved, how to be able to be comfortable in his goodness. Comfortable in his essence, his presence, in his holiness. So that we can lean upon him and begin to experience an encounter with him in ways we've never encountered before. But I believe this is one of the things that we got to look at because what John would write in the, in the entirety of the Gospel of John, he always refers to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. It's not that Jesus didn't love the others. It's just that John knew Jesus loved him, and that was something that he would be able to take with him the entirety of his journey, even in the face of persecution. And we know that some church traditions and, and, and legends and stories would say that John was boiled in oil and couldn't kill him. So they vanished him to the island of Patmos, the very one that had seen him transfigured on the mountain, the very one that would recognize, because he wrote First John 3, that it is at the place of Theoria, that seeing him is how we are to be changed into that same image. It's encounter. If your faith and your revelation doesn't bring you, if it's not taking you to a place of encounter, then we are, we have been so drastically deceived by the enemy that we still think that we start from absence. We think he's absent. Well, we wake up in the morning and he's not here. I guess we think perhaps maybe it's kind of like a, a bird that flies off and, and roost, R-O-O-S-T, roost up in a tree somewhere. And then if we can get our mind right and we can get ourselves together and pray hard enough, he'll come back down and be with us again. In him, we live, move. There is no separation, beloved. In him, we live, move, have our being. This God who has revealed himself as the second person of the Godhead, Jesus the Messiah in the incarnation, is the very one from the beginning of all things was face to face with God, according to John 1 and 1, and all things came into being by him, the Logos, the word, Jesus, that becomes Jesus in the flesh. And nothing that exists, nothing that's in being, exists or has come into being outside of him. So all things are held together by the power of his word. He sustains all things, invisible and visible. They were made for him. They were made by him. But yet the incarnation is that the God who created all things and holds all things together. In other words, there's no place he's not. From the beginning of time to where we are now, there's never been a place he's not fully, completely, totally, without absence without loss of his personhood but through the mystery of redemption in the incarnation the god the son of god the eternal god man the theanthropos who holds all things together has now entered into our human condition so the god who once was the one who held all things together 
is also not, not only is he holding it together, he is now inside of it, appearing as the light, the light that is the life of man. Can you see him? Are you living, beloved, are you living from a memory? Are you living from yesterday's manna? Is your vision of him something that happened in Brownsville? Is your vision about him something that happened in 2007, 2006, 2005, 2003, 2004? Or are you learning to know him because you're learning to walk with him? There's a big difference, beloved. This is so important. This is, you know, some of this, you're not going to get this out of books per se. This, this has been my life. Think about this. If, let me, let me just change the way I'm going to say this. It's very easy. It's very easy to mistake a memory. God's transcendent. He's transcendent. He's other than us. My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. As high as the heavens are from the earth, so are my thoughts above your thoughts. Uh, this, is, this is God. He, he's other than. He's, uh, he's other than. That's what holiness means. To be holy, 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 holy. God, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, holy, 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 other than us. And he transcends our, 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 our intellect. He transcends the way we process, the way we think, the way we perceive. Because God's transcendent, then we know it when we know him. We know when we experience, we know when we encounter him. But the encounter, I think it was St. Teresa um, that had wrote concerning contemplative prayer. That the thing about contemplative prayer is that after it happens, you have no memory of it. All you know is the effects of it. You feel the effects of it, but you don't have the memory of it. Now, this is a really important valid point because it's not that you don't remember what you have remembered. So remembered means you remember what had happened. So you have to take bits and pieces of what had happened, the encounter, the experience, and you remember it together to try to formulate a picture to, to see what had happened the day before or hours earlier. But even the best we can do, is going to be faulty. It's going to be, it's not going to, because it's, it's, it's a shadow of what had happened. But there's no grace, there's no glory, there's no substance in the memory only shadow and type so it's imperative that we learn to be able to be men and women of the spirit to such an extent that we can tell the difference by discerning is this god is this the presence of god today or is this the memory of his presence from yesterday and as you grow in god you're going to find out two or three days later Rather or not, it was the presence or rather it was the memory of the presence. Because two or three days later, when you started to get angry and aggravated and frustrated, ask me how I know. You begin to ask yourself, God, why am I getting irritated so easy? What's, what's irritating me? Why am I getting aggravated? I was such peace last week. Nothing's changed. I'm good. 
I'm not being, I'm not, I haven't committed a sin that I'm aware of. I, I'm, 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 I'm walking, I'm, I'm doing what I know to do. What, what's, what's going on here? And I begin to see you have just surrendered my presence for a memory of my presence. And they look so similar because we're still veiled in our understanding. We're still veiled because we stay under the veil as his bride as long as the bridegroom is veiled before us. Because it's the unveiling of the bride that unveils the bridegroom. The glory of God will be known on the earth because the bride's been unveiled, but the bride only becomes unveiled when he's unveiled. This is what Revelation is talking about, the revealing revelation, the apocalypto, the unveiling of the Son of God. Revelation 19, 20, 21, the unveiling of the bride, the Lamb's wife, is the light of the nation. St. Irenaeus, the glory of God is man fully alive. Man cannot become fully alive outside of him. This is Athanasius. God became a man that man could become God. This isn't saying that God became man so that you and I are now gods. It is that if we want that form of what we call deification, what the Orthodox Church would call deification, comes to what we know as theosis. This is a work of the spirit, a work of grace. And all we can do is position ourselves for that contemplative lifestyle so that he will trust us with the unveiling of who he is. And this becomes the beatific vision that, that is front and center of everything we do, every decision we make, every choice we make, everything we teach and preach. It's Jesus Nothing else matters. It's Jesus. Nothing else saves men. It's Jesus. Nothing else heals disease. It's Jesus. Nothing else delivers you from chains of mind. Nothing else emancipates you from yesterday's dead, dry religion. It's Jesus. Don't be tangled up again in a yoke of bondage. Don't let men put a yoke on you because they're projecting their image of God and their personal biases upon your psyche saying, this is it. They'll take Paul. Follow me as I follow God. You're not following God, man. You're following a memory. You're following a past expression of a dead, dry letter that does not change people. Give us this day our daily bread. Bread. What's that? Provision for today? Yes. But that provision is not just that provision is to know him, that I might know him, the power of his resurrection. What does that mean? That means that in knowing nothing but him crucified, that to know him and the power of his resurrection means that the crucifixion is always in front and center, not as a memory of the past, but of an ongoing reality that continues to save us as we establish ourselves at the Lord's table so that we can eat and drink his body and his blood. And beloved, when you begin to really begin to recognize that this body is a whole entire reality of seeing his entire creation in a way we've never seen before, that we see the living, resurrected Christ as a cruciform lamb. You know, this is Pentecostals, the, they don't want to see a crucifix with Jesus on it, you know, because that's sacrilegious. Beloved, now you don't know what you're talking about. Let's look at this from another perspective of what St. John sees. The one who's seen him transfigured now sees him, sees him unveiled in Revelation chapter 1 through Revelation chapter 4. And we approach this, this set of, of the throne room 
the glory of God, the place where the seraphims, the cherubims, the malachims, the ophanims are worshiping the 24 elders or heavenly Sanhedrin. There is this picture of the perichoresis, the circle, the spherical, the wheels with the the wheels within wheels, Ezekiel chapter one. This vision is not about wagon wheels like you see on pictures, but it is spherical, full of eyeballs. Within they move within each other. The seraphims are are covered with eyeballs, and they they have six wings. With two, they cover their face. Two, they cover themselves. Two, they fly, which says that their worship is never to take glory from God and say, look at me. They cover themselves. But rather, their worship is only to point to the one who is worthy of all the glory. The cherubim, the, those who carry the very throne, the, chariot, the chariots of God's throne, the cherubim, which was Lucifer, by the way. I'm just giving you a painting, a little picture to see what's going on. You're seeing this, this procession happening in the in the heavens and then there is a scroll that is sealed with seven seals and this scroll could not be opened by no one period not even jesus could open it at that moment why because this is looking at putting it there's a time stamp here seven seals no one could open it no one was found worthy no one was found worthy in heaven, in earth, or under the earth, to take the scroll, to break his seals, and to open it. And John begins to weep. I wept much, he said. No one was found. And then the messenger, the spiritual guide that was with John, walks up to him and says, weep not, John. For behold, look. In other words, look. When's the last time you heard the voice of God, the voice of the angels. Behold him, the lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed. And when I looked, I saw a lamb as it had been slain. The lion is the lamb. It's the lion that is the lamb. In other words, beloved, look at it like this. On that cross, what was the lamb of God slain before the foundations of the world? The lamb who takes away the sins of the world, as John the Baptist would say, was also a lion that they couldn't see. So his death on the cross wasn't an act of defeat. It was a point of the greatest victory. And as Irenaeus would say, and Hillary would say, and Athanasius would say, that by death he trampled death. By death, he trampled and put death to death. I looked, the lamb was slain. To live in the knowledge of his resurrection is to see him slain. Is to see him, not to see him slain again, not to crucify him afresh. Not, not, we're not talking about Hebrews here. It's to see that he who was slain, still bears within his body, his glorified, resurrected body, 
that shines with the brilliance of a million suns. The marks of his crucifixion. The holes in his hands, his feet, his side. Because the lamb is the lion. This is so powerful. This is why the Orthodox Church, even the Catholic churches, this is why they center everything they do based upon the Eucharist, Holy Communion, because it's not a memory for them. <coughs> do this in remembrance of me. Remember, remember. Don't remember as a distant memory. Remember is an act of grace that the real presence, the real, true, living presence of Jesus is in the sacrament. Why? Because the only way to experience the power of his resurrection is to know nothing but him crucified. The moment we make light of the cross, we have given ourselves to the spirit of the Antichrist. The moment that the cross becomes a side issue, you need to talk to God about it because I'm telling you right now, if the cross is not front and center of all things, even front and center of the resurrection, then we have stepped into a strong delusion because the cross does not, when we think of the crucifixion and we see Christ on that cross, this is the way we think. Well, he's not on the cross no more. He was taken off the cross and then he was buried and then he rose again three days. He ascended. He sat down at the right hand of God. Yes, yes. But he came to that throne as the cruciform lamb. And he'll remain the cruciform lamb at least until all of the world has been consummated in the finality of all things. So to see him is to see him on that cross, not as a memory, but as a real, living, existing truth of the ongoing sanctification, justification, regenerating power of his blood and of his body. And that, beloved, gives us access to the power of his resurrection so that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. What? Being made conformable to his what? His death. So, so what we're looking at, suffering, death, or crucifixion, resurrection. So to know the power of his resurrection is to always keep the cross front and center of all things. And this, beloved, is the beginning of the fear of God, for this is wisdom. And ultimately, this is what gives us the ability to see him a little bit more than what we've seen him yesterday. And the next day, a little bit more than so that every single day that the beatific vision of him, the transfiguration becomes your transformation 
And that transformation ultimately becomes the reclamation of the nations of this world. Because union, unity, restoration, the apocastasis, the restoration of all things, only happens because Christ has been revealed in you, for he is the hope of glory. Amen. I love you guys. I'm going to pray for you for a moment. And I'm you know, thankful so much for all of you who tune in today. And as I, as I pray and see if the Lord gives me a word for somebody, I'll, I'll release that. I also want you to, uh, I want to make a quick announcement, just like 30 seconds. If you haven't done it, I want you to go to simplyincarnational.com and take a look at what we're working on. We recently um, started the Essentials Masterclass, and starting in January, we're going to take one Saturday each month for 12 months, and we're going to go through the Essentials to Wholeness. We're going to be looking, we're going to be, it's going to, it's going to stretch you. It's going to challenge you. But I promise you that if you stick with it, it's going to change you. It's going to transform you. You're going to know him. You're going to learn, you're going to know him better than you know him today. And that means your spiritual formation is going to continue on. He loves you, beloved. He loves you. He's not mad at you. He's not angry with you. He just wants you to know him. Because he knows you. He wants you to know him. He wants you to know him. Father, bless your people. Touch the hearts. Change the lives. Grant grace and favor. Reveal yourself. Reveal yourself to them. Abba. Abba Adonai. Yeshua. Mashiach. Benahilehim. Shelter, shelter your sons and daughters. How about it? I shelter your sons and daughters. Where's God? God? Shelter your sons and daughters. Show them that in the midst of the storms, perhaps you haven't asked them to rebuke the storm. Rather, you have given them the grace that's sufficient to enter the center of the storm and to allow light to appear in the midst of the darkness. So the others stuck in the same storms can see a great light. Somebody's listening. It's been in a seven-year journey of absolute turmoil in your mind. Of the attack of your identity has chipped away at you for so long that you have really, just really begin to question, question not just the authenticity of who you thought you were at one time, but you question the authenticity of who you think God is. The enemy has chopped at you. I'm breaking those chains now. There's a light. You're beginning to see that light. The Lord's transforming you now. The fresh wind of the Spirit of God is bringing forth a validity of your of who you are, your assignments, your mission. I'm going to read you this verse. I didn't get all the way through here, but verse 35 says that a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. You're going to hear his voice in a stranger. You will not follow you're going to recognize that even in the times where it appeared to be nothing but silence, silence is not a denial. This must be adjusted in your psyche. 
But the silence is an invitation to solitude, and solitude is the place where mysteries revealed. Silence is not the absence of God. Silence is an invitation to solitude where mystery becomes revealed. Bless you, Father. Bless you, Father. Bless you, Father. I want to ask my friend, my brother Raymond and, and my, my son Charles here if they have anything to say. But before I do, if the Lord's blessed you with this teaching today, share it on your walls. Share it to, or share it to somebody that you think will benefit from hearing it. And if God touches your heart to begin to um, to sow a seed or to even partner with us on a, a monthly, weekly or a monthly basis, pray about doing that and let God lead you in that. And don't forget simplyincarnational.com. The essentials class is free. We're starting in January, um, third week, the third Saturday, I believe the third Saturday in January, 6 PM, the central center time. And it's, we're going to cover some stuff that most likely, most likely you never covered before. It's going to be great. It's going to be interactive. It's going to be teaching, but it's going to be interactive. It's going to be in a Zoom classroom. And um, it's going to be great. So right now, I think we've got about 10 or 11 people signed up for it. That's going to be present. And um, I'd like to, I believe it's going to increase once word gets out, especially once um, the students that are already going to be a part of this, when they see what we're going to be doing, it's exciting. It's going to be exciting. So share that as well. Um, go to simplyincarnational.com and, and I'll go to the, the essentials link in the, in the, in the menu and sign up. It's really quick and easy. God bless you very much. Thank you so much for everything that you are doing um, to, to just to be who God's called you to be. Amen. 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 Glory to God. Glory to God. You know, you know, Shane, when you're talking about John the Baptist, I mean, not John the Baptist, but John the Beloved, and how basically how he went toward his bosom and laid down right there by the side of his, his, his chest. And, you know, I was just thinking about how much he loved Jesus, how much, you know, we, we love Jesus, how much we love God. But many of us struggle with that situation here because, you know, we're a type of people that, you know, we use our five senses. And sometimes we struggle with that. We really struggle. Does God really love me? Does he really love me? I struggled with that many years. I mean, yes, I could read the scripture that it tells me how much God loves me, what he's done for me and everything, but I still struggle. I still struggle. But I'll tell you what, the day I truly understood the love of God, especially the love of God for his creation, was the day I held my daughter. I got a minute I'm minute, and that's the word I want to use, a minute sense of what it was like. And once I, I, I grabbed that and I comprehended it, I truly understood how much God loves me. Because now I'm looking at 
the creation between me and my wife that we had that time, my daughter, Raina. And I could see how he looks at us like that also, too, with that such love. But, you know, the thing is, there's many out there right now that are struggling. And just I just want to let you know that God does love you. He's there for you. Even in the midst when you feel abandoned, he's in the midst there. You don't know how many times that when you feel that he's not there and you're struggling, that he's even carrying you. And that's the beautiful thing about God, because when you can't do any more, you've done all that you can, and all you can do is stand, God will carry you. And there's just one thing I also wanted to point out is the fact is that we're being transformed from glory to glory. Yes, we're being transfigured ourselves. Especially when we come to Christ and we accept them as our Lord and Savior, we're being changed. But the only thing is that I've been finding out lately a lot of Christians and the Holy Spirit has been showing me is that our spirit is changing, but our soul is not. We're trapped. We're still oppressed. We're still caught up in bondage. So many times because of bitterness, hatred, unforgiveness, whatever type of emotion, if we were just to let it go and give it to God, you would see how much more spiritually you're able to grow and be transformed. But one thing I will say this, if you enjoyed this teaching today, so into Shane, you know, so into him, so into his life. So I, 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 I am so, you know, today I was talking on Facebook Live about so many good ministries. So many times, you know, we receiving this, but we're not giving back. So into this man's life. Come into this class that he's going to be doing soon. So into that class also, too, for him. I mean, he's been studying. When he comes on and he comes here and speaks, he doesn't just come on just for the spur of the moment. It's because God gave him something, and he studied that word so that you can be able to acknowledge and to be able to grow and receive in the Spirit. And so many times we need to sow back into the kingdom of God. But instead, we just, what do we do? We just put it back into our back pocket. I'm asking you people, give. Be a cheerful giver. Some of you people out there need, you know, you may be saved, but your, but your purses and your wallets are not. You need to take that to the cross. And start sowing into good ministries. Like like I said, my brother Chain here, you know, start sowing into the kingdom. So people like Chain can come on, they be able to preach, because we all struggle. All this is, is, is not free what we do. It takes time, it takes effort. And like I said, that, 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 that class he's going to be having, you know, it's going to take time and effort of what he put into it. And I would love to see you people put effort and time back into this man of God. 
But that's all that I have to say. If you have something, Charles, God bless you, my brother. Speak. Amen, amen, amen. Um, I'm so glad to see the way God use you in that. So we are praying for you. I want to let you know you have a team. You know, we, you have churches in Haiti are praying for you. And I know God is moving in a mighty way. I see too much inside of you, men of God. We are praying for you. Please keep doing the word of God. I encourage you. I know something greater is on the way. And I know God something in store for you. Blessings. Love you. I said, I'm sitting, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here talking. I said, then I said, I said, I'm talking and I'm muted. If, and I'm muted while I'm talking. But, um, you know, this is a young man that God is, has already used in some extremely powerful ways. And, and he's so humble. You know, he doesn't get on to brag. And, and uh, he just, he just, just a precious, precious, precious young man. Such a call of God on his life. And I'm excited. I'm just so excited to see what God where God takes you and, and um, he's talking to him earlier. Um, I want him to come stay with, stay with me for about a week. Um, and um, so we can do some planning and, but more than anything, just kind of, um, you know, just take about a week of, of prayer and, and pouring into him and, and um, just whatever God wants to do. And, um, you know, as well as preparing and, and, and talking and counseling and getting ready for what we're going to do in Haiti and the coming days um, and what, you know, kind of, you know, just things that just we're going to talk about. I'm, I'm excited about it. I really am. My, my passion, my heart is really to pour into leaders, pour into those who are going to be teaching and preaching the gospel and it's not my only passion, but that's my that's my number one passion when it comes to that addressing. Because if we get the gospel right, it changes everything. And we haven't had it right. We've had pieces of it. And God's God's you know, see back your career calls the Holy Spirit a redeeming genius. And he he and he gives examples for it here and there. He calls the Holy Spirit a redeeming genius. In other words, the Holy Spirit will take our, our, our mess that we think is right, and it may not even be right. It's about to just be a little bit of it right, and the rest of us all jacked up. But the Holy Spirit will, he's a, the Holy Spirit's a redeeming genius, so the Holy Spirit will take those things and, and work them together for good and use them and, and, and make, make things happen that only because it's the Holy Spirit doing it. But there's a better way, and it's it's bringing Christ back front and center. Yeah. And I've had people recently, they've turned, they've, they've walked away from me because of this message right here. Now, in the United States of America, it's a sad day when your brothers and sisters walk away from you because you make Jesus for front and center. You make Jesus everything about the Christian faith. 
And uh, it's a sad day when you got people that can't that, that will walk away because they're not as interested in Jesus as they are about their personal their personal accolades and what they can build for themselves and who you know who's the next apostle who's the next does it really matter it doesn't it's not the heart of the father it's not the heart of the father love it is not his heart when there are people on street corners prostituting themselves for money when there are people that are robbing others to get the next fix when there are people that are living under bridges people in mexico living in garbage those people in haiti don't even have a place to stay um i have mercy on us is all i can say about it Lord, have mercy on us. Open our eyes, God. Open our eyes so that we'll not stand before you completely caught off guard. So I thought I was doing your work. What do you think Jesus was talking about when he said, many will say to me in that day, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We did a lot of amazing things. I never knew you. I never knew you because I was in prison, but you never came to see me. I was hungry. You didn't feed me. I was naked. You didn't clothe me. But Lord, when, when did we see you in these ways? Well, when you, this is so profoundly, profoundly important. This is the paradigm shift. The mystery of the ages that's been hidden has now been revealed through God's holy apostles and prophets. Christ in you, the hope of glory. When did we not do it to you? Well, when you saw that man under the bridge, you saw him in the flesh. You didn't see him in the spirit. You didn't see that Christ was in him because in your mind, he hasn't joined the Baptist church yet. In your mind, he hasn't been catechized yet. In your mind, he hasn't repeated the sinner's prayer yet. Christ in you, the hope of glory. You didn't feed me because you ignored me, because you saw them as someone lesser than you, not, re- not understanding that I was in them and I was touched with their feelings of their infirmities and their pain and their suffering. I was in them and you ignored me when you ignored them. Let's have another conference about apostles. Whoopee, ain't nobody saying nothing. It's blasphemous. And just thank God for his mercy and grace because he, it, it wrecks me in such a way. I was that person. I was that person. And I hit rock bottom in 2017 trying to be the, the hot shot. Yeah, yeah, you know, whatever I could do to try to work a crowd. I had fun. God did some things. Again, the Holy Spirit's redeeming genius. But it's not the heart of the gospel. Did we help anybody? We, we did. 
But oftentimes I think it was just because we do to. It wasn't because, at least for me, it wasn't just because my heart was 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 groaning because of the pains of others. And if we really want to be conformed to his image ultimately, there's three, there's three levels that the early church understood here. The first one has to deal with the ability just to communicate. You're going to pray. There's another place of where we're talking about this contemplation. But there's another place of prayer. What true intercession really is, is when you look at the state of someone else and your heart is, is moved with such compassion that you can actually say, if it took the damnation of my soul, if it took the very damnation, the condemnation of my soul for that one right there to be liberated. I'm not, I'm not saying I'm there. Paul is there. That's where Paul was. He looked at his, he looked at his, his brothers after the flesh, the natural seed of Israel, the natural seed of Abraham. And he groaned in prayer. I would to God, you would damn me and save them. This is the gospel. It may not be the most popular right now, but it's the only one that's going to work. Jesus has to be center, preeminent, paramount in all things. Amen. Amen. And, and, and you know what, Shane? I am glad that someone reached out to me because I was one of the least of them. You know, because Jesus said, you know, when you did it to them, you, to the least of them, you did it onto me. And, you know, someone reached out and did it onto me that was the least of them. Believe me, I was worthless. You know, people rather would have me be the, the, the old Raymond, the drug addict, not the clear-minded you know, the sober-minded person, you know, in, in, in life. They could handle that, the drug addict, but they couldn't handle this person now. And I take a look back, you know, and I do take a look, and, and this is the glory to God, that I look back to the years of being a deliverance minister, at least over a thousand have been set free from demonic oppression. You know that, and that means that when... They did it to the least of them, which is me. I was able to help someone else and make an impact in the world with the gospel of Jesus. And that's the thing about it. You know, we're not here for titles. I could care less about it. I could care less. People call me prophet, apostle. I could care less about that. I'm, I'm, I'm servant. We are servants. When Jesus put that that towel around him right there in the midst and had to watch Peter's feet. He humbled himself in the midst of that. And he was basically every time Jesus taught something, he had to show them and he had to show them how to serve. So many times today now, you know, when I go to church and I tell them about a foot washing, they, they tell me, what's that? <laughs> What do you mean? You don't know what a foot washing is? It's when we get together as men and we wash each other's feet humbly, you know, just as Christ did it. There's something about a foot washing, you know, that it's, it's just a beautiful thing. 
and churches are not operating in this no more. They're operating inside the building. They're not operating outside the building. You know, and and one thing was when I was going to church, I would see the people that looked like they shouldn't belong there. The tattoos, the pierced all over their face, tattoos, you know, the holes on their clothes and all that, you know, like you just know that person don't belong in church. Well, everyone else is looking at that person, like hmm, sizing them up and all that. They kind of forgot where they came from. But in the midst of that, when I used to see that, I would go there to introduce myself and ask him if he would like to sit down with me. You'd be amazed. He'd sit down first time in church. We're lifting our hands up, me and my kids, and we're worshiping God. Then he's asking questions. He says, why you guys lift up your hands? I said, because we're worshiping. We, we're giving thanks to him for what he's done in our lives. And next thing you know, the guy goes, well, I'll tell you what. I'll come back to the next service. Next thing you know, the next service, he comes back. Guess what he's doing? He's lifting his hands up in the air. Because now he got something to give thanks to God for, you know. Next thing you know, he starts coming every Wednesday, twice Sunday, sits down with me. And then next thing you know, he finds other people that are like him, and he goes and sits down with them. But it's that first impression that we make. Because why? Because they're coming to look for Jesus. And if these people... The way how they acted, and I wasn't there, they would have never came back into that into that church no more. Because they would say, you know what, I don't if that's how the church is, I don't want that to be. You know, there's very few of us that know how to truly represent Christ. And thank God that you know that He can use the least of these to help those that are least also. You know, so glory to God. Amen. Amen, my brother. So I give it back to you. Amen. And we'll bring it to a close here. I want to say one thing on that, though, is when you um, look at the feet washing, I was listening to um, Brendan Manning not long ago. Perhaps it was a book, uh, one of his books. And he was talking about Jesus only did what he saw his father do. He'd only say what he hears his father say. Then he said, consider this then. That Jesus would only wash the feet of the disciples because he saw his father do it. He would only weep at the tomb of Lazarus because he saw his father do it. He would be moved with compassion. The miracle, he did these things to reveal to us the heart of Abba. And that's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful realization. The other thing is this, is Jesus on this earth was always on the fringes, always with the rejected, the outcasts, the, the throwaways, the ones nobody else wanted, the, the maimed, the lame, the crippled, the blind, the deaf, the demon-possessed, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, 
Where do you think you're supposed to find his body at? As St. Augustine coined the totus Christus. The, the, the Christ in the earth. Gandhi. Gandhi made the observation that he really loved the Jesus that he read about, but he didn't care for the Christians. And if he said he said that if I could find one Christian that was like Christ, I would be a Christian too. Let's 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 pray. Father, bless your people. Thank you so much for all that you're doing. Lord, I pray for my brother Raymond right now. God, I thank you for strength, strength upon strength. God, I pray for supernatural infusion within his body, creative, miraculous regeneration, the same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, quicken, make alive his mortal body. Holy Spirit, as only you can do, master strategist and redeemer, work the miracle. Move beyond our limited vocabulary and do what needs to be done. Bring forth the full manifestation for your glory. In the mighty name of Jesus, we give you praise and glory, Father, for it. Amen and amen. I love you guys and talk with you both soon.